Guys, today, as we're going into this, this topic, I wanted to bring in um, a psalm for us to read just before we do it. And my, my purpose for doing this, I guess, is that as we talk about empathizing with young people today, and as we talk about what it is to really listen and to be in those places, I think the underpinning thing behind all of the growing young research, which we looked at a little bit last time, is found on actually how does God call us to be? And where has God really blessed churches in their ministry? And for me, we serve a God. We love a God who listens, who knows our weaknesses, who knows our struggles, and who's interested, and who wants to know us in those places too. So we have our psalm for today. It's just going to pop up on your screens just now. We're looking at Psalm 86. But if you want to read it through with me, that would be absolutely fantastic. I would really appreciate that. It says this. Bend down, O Lord, and hear my prayer. Answer me, for I need your help. Protect me, for I'm devoted to you. Save me, for I serve you and trust you. You are my God. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am calling on you constantly. Give me happiness, O Lord, for I give myself to you. O Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your help. Listen closely to my prayer, O Lord. Hear my urgent cry. I will call to you whenever I'm in trouble, and you will answer me. No pagan God is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. All the nations you made will come and bow before you, Lord. They will praise your holy name, for you are great and perform wonderful deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your ways, O Lord, so that I may live according to your truth. Grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. With all my heart, I will praise you, O Lord my God. I will give glory to your name forever, for your love for me is very great. You have rescued me from the depths of death. O God, insolent people rise up against me. A violent gang is trying to kill me. You mean nothing to them, but you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Look down and have mercy on me. Give your strength to your servant. Save me, the son of your servant. Send me a sign of your favor. Then those who hate me will be put to shame. For you, O Lord, help and comfort me. Do you know one of the most fantastic things I think about going through this series of growing young that we've been doing as, as a team within this church and that we're sharing little bits of with you as we run through is that it is all from this motivation of serving this wonderful God that we do. Actually, how do we start to reach people more effectively? How can we more look like the community of people that God has called us to look like? How can we more represent our God that is slow to get angry and unbounding and unfailing love? You know, the God we serve is absolutely staggering. He's astonishing. He's so much bigger and better than we ever think he is. And when we're in that kind of place, how do you communicate something to someone else that you don't even understand. I would love to sit here now and say that I understand God. I get enough of God to know that I'm devoted to him and I love him. But I don't fully understand him. Of course I don't. And actually, when we're in that kind of position, we're trying to represent something that is so beyond what we are capable of mirroring. That looking for ways, looking for abilities, values that can underpin what we do, that allow us to represent that God the way that we're called to. Well, we only want to improve in that area because I know I want God to be more obvious in my life all the time. 
I want to be in deeper relationship with him next year than I am this year. I want my life to look more like Jesus would have it next year than it does this year. And I want that to be the case for the rest of my life. I hope you do too. And when we're in that kind of position and that kind of devotion, help to get there is important. And this sort of program, I guess you could call it, I've grown young, has been really useful. And hopefully sharing it this morning will uh, we'll just be a nice little insight as we run through. But just a little reminder, their logo is going to come up on the screen now. But we started to look at it before. But Growing Young is um, just this organization. It's, it comes out of Fuller Seminary or Fuller Bible College in the States. Um, and their logo there, I quite like Converse with a tree. Why would you not like that? Um, but at the same time, they did a lot of research and essentially what happened as an organization was they started to look and see that there was a sort of pattern of decline starting to happen in the U.S. with the church. And then they looked across the world and saw that actually the church was in decline in Europe as well. And although it is actually on the rise and it's growing in many of the other continents worldwide, in Europe and the U.S., currently the church is overall in decline. And I kind of looked and went, well, Why? and started to ask those questions. And then they decided to put a bit of research together, but instead of looking at all the negative and saying, so what's going wrong? They decided to look at the positive and say, well, let's find out churches that are growing. Let's do research, find out lots of churches that are growing because there are plenty of churches bucking that trend and go and interview people from those churches, interview leaders, key volunteers, staff members, people who are really involved in making that vision go forward or who really seem to have caught the vision and be getting on board with it. Let's interview them, let's talk to them, and let's get their answers. Let's not even direct the conversation hugely, but really listen to what it is they have to say, and then try and pick out key themes, and then find out what's consistent across churches that are growing. See, one of the things that I love about Growing Young is they're not about method. It's not about if you do this, if you sing these worship songs, if you make sure that you have a guitar, not an organ, or if you have a choir, not a cappella, or if whatever. They're not fussy about that kind of stuff. They found that actually churches that operate in a much more traditional way and churches that operate in a much more contemporary way could both grow quite easily if they have these set of underpinning values. And actually, what happened for us to get linked up with them is Graham Duff and Neil McDougall, so Minister at Lone Head and down at um, North Berwick, decided that they would go across and take a visit and go visit, meet with the guys involved in Fuller Seminary and chat to them, see if it's something that they could bring over here. And then as a result, they chose to launch a pilot project in Lothian Presbytery, which is where we are, um, with a bunch of churches over here who might want to engage in the program. And it's been running on Zoom because of what's been going on recently and that we can't meet in person. But we've been able to run through the training. A lot of the principals meet together, have conversations around it. And it's been a wonderful experience. And we're starting to roll out some of our learning now. So that's really where we're at. And do you know what? Anything that helps us to learn and to grow, why would we not want to listen or at least find out what they have to say? So they found out through their research that there were six core commitments, that if churches sort of committed to these six core values then they would sort of run in the direction of growth, that they would start to move in the direction of the church growing young. And although growing young sounds like a loaded phrase, like all they're concerned about is teenagers, that's not the case. The whole idea behind the name is that churches that are maybe a bit older to grow young, you want to bring in people on the younger end. And what they found is that if you get a church that loves young people well, then the whole church tends to grow as a result because it brings families in, it brings younger adults, it becomes a place that people want to be when you get to that sort of community. So they would say if you target and work well in that area, 
then your church overall will grow young. So it's not a specific targeted youth ministry thing. That's not their purpose. It's really about renewal in the church. And that's what they're working towards. So it's going to flash up on your screen again just now, but this is the six core commitments that they say are the things that come out. So you've got keychain leadership, which is what we looked at last time, which is actually what keys do you hold? And by keys, they're really meaning what things are you able to pass on? What abilities do you have in leadership, life experience, other things that you can pass on to somebody else? And rather than just sort of lending them your keys or giving them short-term roles that don't really stand for anything, how can you actually pass on roles of leadership that matter to people so that the church changes from being a place where they turn up and do the odd thing to be in their church and they feel like their role is significant. So what keys do you hold? How can you pass them on to other people? And really, you're looking at discipleship and mentorship through that and promoting people into leadership. And they're all fantastic gifts to give people. The next one, which will pop up now again, empathize with young people today. And I'll just run through the next few. Be the best neighbors in your community. Prioritize young people everywhere. Fuel warm relationships throughout your church family and take Jesus' message seriously at the core of it all. So they're the values that they would say, if your church holds those six values as core commitments in the way that you choose to do worship and the way you choose to exist as a family and as a church family, then actually you will start to see growth. It would be their take through all their research. And actually, I've got to be honest, I agree with them. I think it's a fantastic bit of research. And a lot of the stuff that I've encountered in the past that's about how do you engage with young people, how do you encourage younger generations to get in your church, it becomes very programmatic. The thing I like about Growing Young is it's much more if we can create a church that actually starts to represent the things that Jesus called us to represent, then we will start to see us grow young and then put them down really in these core values. So it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of research. As I say, last time we looked at keychain leadership, today we are really looking at empathizing with young people today. So through their research, they encountered a couple of, of different things. Um, the first one is that our brains are still developing. You know, any sort of psychological analysis will tell you this, but, or physiological, but our brains are still developing up until the age of about 25. So it's still growing, expanding, developing, really settling in on the person that we're going to become. And in a lot of cases, our education and support structures for people can only really exist up until maybe 18. So you're looking at seven years on the top end after people have graduated school where they're still at that stage of real development and moving into adulthood. And in a sense, we sort of abandon them at that point. It's kind of like, on you go. You can go to uni, you can go get a job, you can do something, but you're on your own now. And actually, I don't think many people when they hit that age actually feel ready to be on their own at that point. And if we're at that point where we're still growing and developing up to the age of 25, how do we continue to support and love people in that process? The next thing um, is research would suggest, the Grown Young research would suggest that 28 is the new 18. That is quite a phrase. 28 is the new 18. Well, what's meant by that? I think generations kind of older than mine. I would be on the cusp either way with this in terms of age range. I'm 33, by the way. But I think that with that being the case, what it's really getting at is this, that for a lot of generations previous, 18 was really that stage where you stepped into adulthood, right? It's like you'd finish school, you would move into work, you might consider getting married, 18, early 20s, that you would be at that stage of becoming independent, moving away from home, really starting to, for want of a better phrase, move into full adulthood, really start to grow and develop. But actually, as the world has changed and changed substantially, 
in terms of what's available to young people, pressures on parents, pace of life in general. Actually, developmentally, things have changed a lot. And we're at a stage now where for so many young people, when we grew up, kind of my generation older, I think, we grew up in a sense often quite materially poor, but relationally rich. So our parents would have been around a lot. We'd have had very, very close relationships potentially with family members that actually other family members might have been actively involved in supporting. But we might not have had a lot in terms of physical possessions. I remember for me growing up, certainly, when school ended on a whatever day of the week, the first thing I did was go home and get changed, go back down to the park and just play football with friends till dinner. And then when dinner happened, I'd go home and have dinner and then go back down to the park again and play football until I was told I had to go home. And actually, that would be just about every day of the week. And you look at young people nowadays and think, actually, they tend to have a lot materially. So they'll have a lot of possessions, a lot of computers, a lot of consoles, a lot of entertainment devices, but they don't necessarily have parents who are around all the time. You know, both parents are working full-time jobs. They're having to support during childcare. They're having to get through life in these kind of ways. And actually, because the pace of life has picked up, we have people, and we've had a complete switch, in a sense, from people who were quite emotionally and relationally rich, but potentially materially poor, to a lot of people who are very materially wealthy and rich, but quite relationally poor. And in terms of development, that really slows things down. That actually, when you speak to a lot of people today, there's not a desperation to move away from home. Actually, if you can be at home and be supported in terms of a lot of the different structures while working and earning a wage and having all these kind of things, then your 20s, in a sense, become a real time of freedom and exploration. That you can travel that you've not got massive financial responsibilities, you're not settling down, you're not tied down, you can just earn money and enjoy yourself. And it's a real period of freedom in life. If you speak to a lot of young people today, they don't fancy having kids until they hit their 30s, a lot of them. And it's that sort of phase of, I want to enjoy my freedom in my life. And actually, they've got the availability to do that. So those kind of pressures disappear in a lot of sense. There's this digital existence. I, I feel so sorry for a lot of young people today in terms of digital existence. It's really tough. I look back to when I was at school and think, man, I had no idea how popular I was. None. I went out and hung out with friends all the time after school. I had my select group of friends, but I got on with a lot of people. Young people today, man, they have evidence. They're on social media. How many friends have you got? How many likes did you get on that post? How many people are commenting? If you put an invite, how many people respond? They know exactly how popular they are, and they have evidence to back it up. They know how well liked they are or not liked. That actually a lot of the insecurities that we found when we were younger of not knowing and trying to establish who you are, young people today have evidence for that stuff. It's horrible. And I think living in that term of circumstance is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And actually places for vulnerability become difficult. Because as people, where do we find we have the deepest conversations? It's with close friends and it's in person. And actually, when people are spending a lot of time in digital existence, we end up with a lot of surface relationships as the natural outflow of that. And you end up at this point where actually the life that they're used to is so different to what we grew up with. That actually, there, there's this sort of thing of instant answers, instant gratification today that we never experienced either. I remember genuinely having a band I loved when I was younger that released a new album. I was so excited. I went to HMV and ordered it, and I got it, I think, seven months later. 
because it was a foreign import and it was really high demand. And I just, I couldn't get it. And you think like today, if young people want something, you buy it on Amazon Prime, you might even get it that day, if not the day after. Most things you can just download offline for entertainment wise. But actually we're so used to having instant answers. If I've got a question I don't know the answer to, I don't need to wait and ask someone who might know. I don't even need to research. I just need to go, hey Google, what's the answer to this? That actually we're so used to getting instant answers right now, instant gratification. If I want this, I can get it tomorrow. If I need this, I can do it now. If I want to find this out, I just find it out now. That actually life moves at that faster pace. It's an incredibly different experience. And you know what? There's some wonders in that. And technology is a wonderful thing. I'm not talking it down at all. But the problem that we have when it comes to empathizing with young people is how do you relate? How do you understand them? How do you talk to them when they're living in a completely different world to what we're used to? And I think the problem that we so often have in terms of church context and in terms of passing on information is that a lot of the questions that we're answering are questions that are 40 years old that the young people that we're working with aren't asking anymore. And actually, when we're in that kind of context, empathizing with young people becomes very difficult unless we can understand where it is they're coming from. And that final question for me is this. How can you help and disciple young people as they grow? As they're going through all of these developmental stages with all these different pressures, how can we help and disciple our young people as they grow? Massive, massive question. But on that note, I've got a little clip. Um, as you guys know, I have a young family on the go. We have, I'm just going to do ages because my kids will want me to and they'll be watching this. Eden, who's seven, Ariel, who's three, and Zion, who's a month. And actually, Disney films get watched quite a lot in our house. Eden loves princesses, and Ariel does too now. And Disney princess films especially <laughs> have had quite a lot of airtime in our house. Um, when given the opportunity, I try and make it Tangled. The one we watch, Tangled, is funny. I enjoy watching Tangled. The other one for me that often comes up, though, is Brave. Um, when we were talking about empathizing with today's young people, just a clip from Brave came to mind straight away. I want to show it to you, and then we're going to have a chat on the other side. So enjoy this. But a clip from Disney's Brave. Um, cracking film and not just because it's Scottish. Boys, you are excused. <laughs> what did I do now? Your father has something to discuss with you. <laughs> Fergus? <clears throat> The lords are presenting their sons as suitors for your betrothal. What? The clans have accepted. Dad! What? I... Helena! Honestly, Merida, I don't know why you're reacting this way. <gasps> this year, each clan will present a suitor to compete in the games for your hand. I suppose a princess just does what she's told. A princess does not raise her voice. Merida, this is what you've been preparing for your whole life. No, it's what you've been preparing me for my whole life. I won't go through with this. You can't make me. Merida! Merida! <laughs> Once, there was an ancient kingdom. Oh, uh, Mum. 
Ancient kingdom. Its name, long forgotten, ruled by a wise and fair king who was much beloved. And when he grew old, he divided the kingdom among his four sons, that they should be the pillars on which the peace of the land rested. But the oldest prince wanted to rule the land for himself. He followed his own path, and the kingdom fell and chaos and ruin. That's a nice story. It's not just a story, Merida. Legends are lessons. They ring with truths. Ugh, Mum. I would advise you to make your peace with this. The clans are coming to present their suitors. It's not fair. Ugh, Merida, it's marriage. It's not the end of the world. Muttering. I don't mutter. Ah, you do. You mutter less when something's troubling you. I blame you. Stubbornness. It's entirely from your side of the family. <laughs> I take it the talk didn't go too well, then. I don't know what to do. Speak to her, dear. I do speak to her. She just doesn't listen. Come on, now. Pretend I'm Merida. Speak to me. What would you say? Do this. Sure you can. There, there, that's my queen. Right, here we go. I don't want to get married. I want to stay single and let my hair flow in the wind as I ride through the glen, firing arrows into the sunset. Merida, all this work, all the time spent preparing you, schooling you, giving you everything we never had. I ask you, what do you expect us to do? Call off the gathering. Would that kill them? You're the queen. You can just tell the lords the princess is not ready for this. In fact, she might not ever be ready for this. So that's that. Good day to you. We'll expect your declarations of war in the morning. I understand. This must all seem unfair. Even I had reservations when I faced betrothal. Yeah. But we can't just run away from who we are. I don't want my life to be over. I want my freedom. But are you willing to pay the price your freedom will cost? I'm not doing any of this to hurt you. If you could just try to see what I do, I do out of love. But it's my life. It's... I'm just not ready. I think you'd see. If you could just... I think I could make you understand. If you would just... Listen. Listen. <laughs> I swear, Angus, this isn't going to happen. Not if I've any say in it. All right. Lovely clip there. Cracking film, by the way. Uh, see, when I was looking for the clip, I love Brave. It's such a good film. <laughs> but, do you know, just that concept, it's funny, isn't it? But in the church, I think we so often face a lot of the questions that are brought up in that film. You know, we so often face a lot of the issues that are brought up there. Of actually, we're looking at other people's lives going, we know what's best for you. If you guys met Jesus, if you just understood how much he loves you, what he's done for you, if you got it, then you would see that this is the best pattern. This is the best way that life could go. We're further down the road. We've been there, seen it, done it. We know this is the best option. And then actually people who are at the start end of that equation, if you can put yourself in their shoes, if you can remember what it was like before you were at the stage where faith was something that was really serious in your life, 
being forced down any avenue doesn't go well. Someone telling you what to do is something that 99% of the time we don't react well to. And actually, where does that gap start to close? That gap starts to close when actually there's an availability to listen and to listen. One of my favorite bits in there is from Billy Connolly's characters just sitting there going, imagine I'm Merida, you know, and then he runs through all of that kind of quote where he's like, I'm throwing through the hair and I want to, and he runs through all of that. And it's funny because we jump to our interpretations and our conclusions on what we think other people are asking, what we think other people are looking for answers to. And then we provide the answers we think they need, whether they're the answers they're looking for or not. And the funny thing for that is you can see when it does the cut scene between Helena and Merida at the end, where Helena's kind of going, look, I think I could get you to see I'm doing this because I love you. And Merida's like, I think I can make you understand I'm not doing this to hurt you if you just listen. And I think for me in the church, we often find ourselves at that point where we're going, look, we're not trying to say do this, do that, or do the next thing because we're trying to not love you. This is because we're trying to love you. And people at the other end are going, yeah, but we're not trying to say no because we don't love you. I think you'd understand where we're coming from if you just listened. And so often we're too busy trying to provide the answers that we never really listen. And this is um, just going to come up on the screen now, but this is it. You know that clip from Brave? Older traditions and expectations being placed on the young. Made to fit old molds and understandings of how things should be. Does it sound familiar? That actually we find ourselves in a place where we're trying to make people fit into the molds that the church has held for years nationally. And you know, one of my favorite things about Gorebridge, I don't think we're bad for this. This isn't a shot at the church here at all. I'm just trying to work around this avenue of why it's so important to empathize. And for me, if you can't hear where the other person's coming from, then actually most of the time they won't want to hear what you've got to say. It's fascinating. These boundaries, these barriers, they always get broken down by relationship. See, what are some of the barriers that block empathy? What are some of the barriers that block us from empathizing with our young people? Well, for me, lack of understanding is a big one, right? I don't know what it's like to be a young person today. I don't know the issues they're facing. Ross, you're talking about online presence. Like, I don't even know what it feels like to live like that. Do you know what? I don't know what it is to live in a household situation where actually home is a place of conflict. It's not a place of settled heart. Now, that's not the case for every young person, but it is for many. That actually home doesn't feel like a settled place. Man, we've had young people attend the youth group here before whose parents would take the mickey out of them because they were going to church. We're living in a different world. And actually, when we're in that kind of point and we can't understand where they're coming from, then we jump to conclusions based on old understandings, that second point on that slide. We jump to those conclusions. We go, oh man, young people today, they just, they struggle with consistency or they've got no consistency at all, right? They're just not committed. Like if they committed, they would be here. And then you find out actually the reason that they've not been here for two weeks is because they're at home caring for an elderly relative or because their parents haven't let them come or because they're trying to please five different friendship groups and they're struggling to do that balance well or because there's numerous other things that have come in and hit their life, and they're just struggling to do it. Growing up is tough. When we have to make decisions about who we're going to become, what our primary commitments are going to be. Man, if I'm 15 and I live in a household where it is not normal to be a Christian, and I'm looking at making a decision to follow Jesus, that's potentially going to cause conflict with my parents. 
It's going to cause conflict with siblings, with my friendship groups. It's going to find me alienated from a number of the secure places in my life. And actually, if I choose to be slow about that or inconsistent or struggle with it, it's not because I'm not committed to Jesus and not committed to the concept of becoming a Christian. It's because I'm struggling with the balance. I can think of so many occasions in my life when I was younger where actually I had the best intentions and then life just got so busy and my approach to busyness was life shutting down. And so often when we get older, we can look back and think, man, I thought I was busy at 15. I can't believe I thought I was busy at 15. You know, try Ross at 15 years old. Try holding down a job and having a family. That's what busy looks like. But at the same time, when you're at that point of being 15, you genuinely believe you're busy at that stage in life. And when you struggle and when it becomes overwhelming and there's deadlines and there's pressures and you just shut down because you're learning what it is to grow up, where's the empathy in there from the church? Where's the empathy in there from the people who are the Jesus representatives in our life? Do you know, I think another barrier that blocks empathy, it's assuming disinterest. The amount of times it's fascinating that you hear kind of statements like, oh, but young people just aren't interested in church or religion. I think it's completely untrue if I'm honest. Do you know the amount of young people who, if you were to put on something saying, we're going to have a deep discussion exploring spirituality, you could have that conversation with almost any young person you know. They don't want to be defined in a box or pushed in a certain avenue, potentially. But actually, the understanding of their spirituality, of who they are as a person, of what it means, of what life is really about, if there's a God or not, what it means if there is, it'd be rare to find a young person who doesn't have an opinion on that that actually a lot of the time there isn't a level of disinterest there, but there's an understanding that their opinion potentially doesn't matter because of past experience or that it's not going to be listened to. Do you know, I think another barrier that comes in is previous bad experience. You know, I tried, Ross, I tried. Genuinely, I've tried speaking to young people in the past or empathizing or trying to listen to their situation or figuring out where they're coming from. And do you know what? They just shut me down or they were really mean or they did this or they said this or whatever. I had a really bad experience. Do you know, I don't want to downplay those bad experiences, but we've all had them. It's just part of life. I don't know anybody who's been a Christian for a long period of time and been involved in church for a long time who hasn't been hurt by Christians at some stage in their life. That doesn't mean that we give up on relationship with Christians. That would be really weird. If the first job you ever went for, you had a really bad experience, you just go home and go, okay, I'm never going to work again. That's me. You know, actually, when we have bad experiences of something, we learn. We do it different next time. That's what we do. We learn, we develop, we grow, we don't give up. And bad experiences can be tough, they can be traumatic, but they don't define the future unless we let them. We move past them, we continue to love anyway because that's what we're called to do. And then the last one for me that is a barrier that really exists for people is fear. Fear. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't even know if they'll want to talk to me. I don't know if they'll think it's weird if I ask questions. I, I just don't know, and I'm afraid of what it's going to look like. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Fear's a legit thing. And for me, actually, getting nervous about these conversations... I'm not going to lie, I've been in youth work 15 years. I still get nervous about those conversations. But you know, the fascinating thing about our faith is that we believe in a God who says perfect love casts out fear. And actually, as we choose to move to love people and get beyond any assumed narratives we have, any past experiences we have, and place a value on the person we're speaking to based on the understanding that they are made in God's image, that they are His child, that He loves them. And actually, we choose to engage with them on that level and listen to where they're at.
starts to move past those barriers. And that is one of the biggest gifts that we have to give. Do you know the other bit of research that Grown Young did into this empathizing with young people? They found that young people are asking three main questions. Three main questions. They're, they're packaged and phrased a lot of different ways, but the three main questions they're asking are these. Identity. So what's my identity? Who am I as a person? Belonging. Where do I fit? Where do I fit in in life? And purpose. What difference can I make? What does my life mean? What do I stand for? What am I about? And you know, the fascinating thing for me when I read them when we were doing the research is this. I think that that would stand for everybody everywhere always. I think you could go back to the 1200s and speak to people and say, actually, what are the big questions you're asking? And they would be put within those barriers. They put within those, time frame, those frames, sorry. That idea of actually identity. Who am I? Belonging. Where do I fit in and purpose? What's my life about? Actually, it's very hard to find joy in life if we can't put something in those boxes, if we can't understand the answers to those questions. And the funny thing for me is, as the church, we have the answers to those questions. Who am I? Well, you're a child of God. You're made in His image. He loves you a bits. Where do I fit in? You're part of His family. You're part of the church. That actually, God wants you to be with His people, in His presence, filled with His Spirit. And purpose, what difference can I make? Well, He has a plan and purpose for your life. And with the Holy Spirit at work in you, you have no idea what God can do with your life. No idea. His plans for you could be so much bigger than you could ever understand. The thing is, identity, our identity is found in Christ. Belonging, we belong to Him. And our purpose is found in Him. That all of these questions are questions that we have the answer to. But the funny thing is, and I can think back to when I was kind of 14 and had a sister who was a Christian and friends who were Christians and I wasn't there yet. And actually, when people listened to my concerns and listened to what I was struggling with, I was willing to listen to what they had to say. When people just told me what I needed to believe, or told me who I was, or told me what I needed to be, I can't think of many occasions where I listened. Isn't it funny? For us as the people further down the road, what a gift it is to be with someone and say, hey, what do you think your identity is? Who do you think you are? Where do you see your life going? Where do you fit? What's your life about? What are the concerns you're running with? What are your struggles? What's good in your life? I'm not just waiting for my turn to speak. I want to genuinely find out how are you? Where are you? Where are you at? Where's life? And the gift of being listened to and of having somebody genuinely concerned for your life, genuinely empathizing with you. In those places, we find our deepest relationships. We're most likely to be most vulnerable about what we really think. You know, it's fascinating. You ask a young person what they think about God, you'll get an answer. If you sit with them and listen to their life for half an hour and listen to their life story and then ask them that question, you'll get the real answer. Time, relationship, that's where this kind of stuff is found. And it's just phenomenal when you get to those points. I want to jump just now where we're going to go through a couple of passages. Um, and one of them, actually, we're going to the marriage passage. <laughs> we're going to 1 Corinthians 13. And there's a reason why. 
Um, but if, um, we can just pop that up on the screen now, guys, if you can. We're going to jump to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, um, and the message. Um, it should just pop up on the screen just now. It says this, If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Do you know, for me, that passage is one of these passages that we know so well and that has come to the fore for so many over the years. You know, if you're a Christian, you got married, it was probably read at your wedding. And actually, for me, as we run through that passage, why am I putting that up today when we're talking about empathizing with young people? The funny thing for me is, I think you could almost rephrase that to, if I have all of the answers to the concerns and questions in your life, if I understand everything you need so that your life will be everything that you want it to become, but I don't love you, I'm nothing but the squeaking of a rusty gate. See, the fascinating thing for me is this. The church for so often in our society has had a voice of judgment. It's had a voice of judgment, and I think acknowledging that matters. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that we shouldn't acknowledge what the Scripture says. I want to put that out in advance. I want to hold to the truth of the Bible. I believe and love God's Word. But the funny thing for me is that if I was part of society in general and there was an organization or an institution I had nothing to do with that was judging my life externally and telling me everything that was wrong with me, I would not want to listen. In fact, I'd be angry about that. And I think for so long, the church has launched opinion after opinion after opinion based on biblical truth to force on people's lives who don't believe in Jesus. For me, that's a really weird concept. That's kind of like, hey, we know you don't believe and we know you don't want to live to the standards of what the Bible would call you to, but actually the life you're living is wrong because you're doing this, 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 and this. Judging people by a standard that they don't accept, and then all they hear is that Christians think this or Christians think that. It's amazing working with young people. How many times you hear it when you meet with them and you're like, so what's your impression of Christianity? They're like, oh, I don't really know anything about it, but Christianity, that's the one where actually they don't like people of alternate sexualities, do they? Yeah, they don't like people who get drunk. They don't like people who do drugs. And they don't like people who are promiscuous or have fun. And they don't like people who, who kind of live in a way that's not perfect, right? And you get those sort of replies. Because actually, what they see in the media and what they hear from the church is exactly that, that we disapprove of all those things. But no one's beside them telling them how much Jesus loves them. No one's taking the time to run through the stuff that really matters. See, the funny thing for me is that when you fall in love with something, you alter your life to accommodate that thing. We all do it. Man, before I got married to Fee and before I fell in love with her, I used my spare time in a very different way to how I use it now. Man, if I had time off before I got married to Fee, I had a pool table in my house growing up. I lived on that pool table. It was a happy place. Once I got married, what happened? I dropped my season ticket to my favorite football team. I moved out of a house that had a pool table in it, and I spent my spare time sitting watching TV shows that I didn't particularly like, <laughs> learning about jewelry making and crocheting because my wife talks about it a lot. 
Although, to be fair, she knows a lot about basketball and hearts at this stage in her life. And actually, the funny thing is, as we share what matters to us, there's a willingness to listen. And the funny thing is, I could make it sound like I didn't want to hear any of that stuff, or I didn't want to know it. But I did. And the reason that I did want to hear and know that stuff is not because I have any interest in jewelry making or crocheting, but it's because it matters to my wife and I love her. That's how life works. See, for me, if I fall in love with Jesus, then actually if I read how he wants me to live after that, or I'm discipled and gain an understanding of how he wants me to live after that, then I'm likely to listen because I know he loves me and I love him. But if all I hear is about how much he's judgmental of this, that, or the next thing, or the people that represent him are, then actually I don't want to hear that he loves me. I don't want to know him. A barrier has already been put in place. See, the thing for me is because those barriers are in place and we're starting from behind, as we empathize with young people, I think starting in that place of love is the most important place to be. I look at Jesus' interaction with people like the woman at the well. Society had dismissed her. She was outcast because of her life decisions, because of her mistakes. People didn't talk to her, associate with her, want to know her. And Jesus turns up at the well and hangs out with her talks to her about her life, listens to her concerns, empathizes with her situation, and loves her anyway. The woman caught in adultery, we all know Jesus' response to that, right? Was to go, well, you should never have done it. Like, what are you coming to me for? I write that was Jesus' response. His response is one of, actually, anybody here never sinned? You want to cast the first stone? Oh, look, they've all gone. Well, where are your condemners? Well, I don't condemn you either, but go and don't do that again. Look where it got you. That Jesus' compassion, his love, his empathy for us. He knows our weaknesses, he knows our situation, and he loves us anyway. His love goes beyond our hurts. And when we encounter that love and have our life changed by it, when we discover that our identity is in a God who loves us more than we could understand, in spite of our mess, when we find out that we belong in the church and in the church family, even if our behavior isn't perfect, if we're messy when we turn up, if we make mistakes, if actually we repeatedly make the same mistakes, there's a place where you can still be loved and valued. And when you find out that your purpose is in drawing closer to him, becoming more like him. What a gift that is. But actually, if young people don't experience, and I think this goes beyond young people, if people don't experience how much Jesus loves them much more than they experience the judgment of Christians, they're never going to get to that place. They're never going to get there. And Jesus had an amazing ability to listen, to empathize, to understand, and to walk the journey with people rather than just chuck standards on them. And that's the God we serve. Guys, I want to jump to our next story. Next story is in Mark 10. It's the story of Bartimaeus. It's just going to pop up on the screen in two secs, but the story of Bartimaeus is a wonderful one. And it's Mark 10, 46 to 52. But let's read this together and we'll have a chat about it afterwards. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You could just see the scene, right? Jesus coming through to a grand procession, and this guy sitting by the side of the street shouting. Many people rebuked him, told him to be quiet. It's like, Bartimaeus, honestly, you're embarrassing yourself. Shush. But all he did was shout more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and just said, call him over. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. 
He's calling you. Love Bartimaeus' response. I know I've gone into this before, but everything that Bartimaeus owned, all his worldly possessions are in his cloak, and he's blind, so when he throws it, he doesn't know where it's gone. But he is so excited to see Jesus that as soon as he's called over, he throws his cloak out the way, jumps to his feet, and comes to Jesus. And then Jesus' question. I just love this about Jesus' character. The amount of times where he just asks obvious questions. It's brilliant. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. A blind beggar at the side of the road who's desperate to see Jesus. What do you think he wants? You don't have to be immense to figure that one out. But what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What a story. See, the thing that I love in these kind of stories is there's this acknowledgement in 1 Corinthians 13 that we can have all the answers, but if we don't love the people, then we're nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. We're that annoying noise in the background saying, well, I knew what you should have done there. I know what would serve your life better. Well, you shouldn't have done that, should you? And we just become a judgmental voice in the background. You shouldn't behave like that. That's not okay. Don't do that. Stop that. So often what the church can be seen as But when we love, that message gains relevance because there is people who love the way that they're actually called to love rather than offering the judgment that doesn't apply in a sense to people who aren't even trying to follow Jesus. And then we're looking at the story of Bartimaeus where somebody who's desperate to find Jesus and the response of a lot of the religious people and the crowd around them, my goodness, how much can that response look like the response that people receive from the church today. People shouting their questions going, what on earth is going on? Where is God at the moment? Look at the state the world's in. How can you believe at the moment and asking all these questions? And the church's response is so often just to go, shh, stop it. And Jesus' response is to just ask the most obvious of questions. Bartimaeus, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And in that moment, changes everything. Bartimaeus changes from being someone who feels on the outside, having the cold shoulder from the religious people of his time, unable to get close enough to relate to Jesus because the people who are with Jesus or representing Jesus stop him getting there by their actions and by what they say. But actually, when he calls out to him, Jesus' response is not one of rejection or judgment. It's one of relationship and listening, empathy, Bartimaeus, come talk to me. Call them over. What would you like me to do for you? And Bartimaeus gets to make his request. And he doesn't only make it, he's listened to and loved. Now, I'm not saying everybody who comes to the church and wants healed is going to receive it. Hopefully and prayerfully that happens. But at the same time, I think one of the biggest gifts that we can give people as a church is to listen to them and to love them. I hear your concern. I hear where you're coming from. I understand. That sounds incredibly tough. Can we help? How can we love you in this circumstance? Not if you want to be here, you've got to be perfect. But actually, I want to hear your story. What are you thinking? Where are you coming from? What's going on? Because in those places of deep relationship, discipleship happens. In those places of deep relationship and vulnerability, people get to know Jesus. Those big questions about identity, about belonging, about purpose, they get asked and answered. And all those barriers that stop us from empathizing with people start to fade away. Because if there's one thing that removes fear, it's friendship. 
And actually, that only happens as we start to have those conversations. Being listened to is a gift and not a small gift. It is a phenomenal gift. Guys, I want to finish with a slide that's just going to come up. But I guess the, the questions I want to give you, I know I did this last time, but the questions I want to give you is whose story can you listen to? You know, I know the times we're in at the moment is, are, are really, really strange. But you know, some of the biggest gifts that we can give to people at the moment is call them and be on the phone for a while. If you're sitting furloughed or isolated or if life is tough at the moment, who is it that you could call if you've got nothing else to do? And just listen to and talk to and share with. Because what a gift that could be during this time. Where can you remove a barrier and create dialogue? Where do your fears exist? Is there parts for you where there's a lack of understanding? Do you jump to conclusions about young people based on old understandings? Do you assume disinterest? If you've had bad experience before, where can you start to remove barriers and create dialogue? Because that's what changes things. We want a culture in this church where people talk, where people are friends, and when actually it's a genuine, loving relationship on those deeper levels. But they only happen when we take the steps to remove those barriers, where we act on our intentions and do it consistently with love. Where can we bring love where judgment may exist currently into people's lives? If you know someone at the moment who's sitting on issues about stuff or hurts or pains, where can you love them? And do you know the funny thing? I was saying earlier that providing answers, often they aren't listened to. I think the biggest gift that we can give people sometimes is just listening to where they're at and genuinely listening. You don't even need to answer. A lot of the time, someone just being there to hear your concerns changes everything. How can you bring love where judgment might exist currently? Because, and I want to finish on this Bible verse. It's just a lovely way to finish. Hebrews 4.15. It says this. Because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows He knows where we struggle. He knows where it's hard. He knows where we struggle to follow him, where our failures are, where our hurts are, where our fears are. And actually, he empathizes with us. And that's the model of leader that we have. That's the model of God that we have. Let us love like him. Let us empathize with those around us. Let us let people ask the questions they're truly asking rather than answer the questions that we think they need the answers to. Let's sit in those places of awkwardness and listen. Let's be with people and let's not be in those kind of situations like Merida and Helena where both are trying to enforce their will without actually listening to where the other one's coming from. Let's be a voice of love where judgment has previously existed and let's stand for what is true biblically with those who claim to follow Jesus and who want to follow him. But let's love those beyond those barriers and beyond those boundaries who need to hear the message of a God who just adores them. And let's be that voice of love in those circumstances. Guys, let's pray.